but it's really, really important that we recognise that that's not the case for a lot of family violence victims, that you can't see the hurt that they're carrying, you can't see the abuse that they've lived with for many years. And for some people, their fear and their hurt does not um, look like the way we almost want it to, that they may be aggressive, like fear can look like aggression. And that is more challenging to deal with. And so I think that it's really important that we know that and that we um, are ready still to provide the same level of support that we would for someone like me versus somebody who doesn't look like that. The way that that encouraged me and supported me at a time when I just felt so alone, that is what I wish for family violence victims, that they would not feel alone, that they would feel like there was an army of women that they knew and didn't know behind them cheering them on. And and I think that that does exist, you know, certainly from a stranger's perspective, that's how I feel. I feel like a champion for people that are going through it, that that's all I wish for them is that they would feel my love and support. Um, but yeah, in a very, very real way, Running Mums was like my little army of support. Welcome to the RMA podcast. host Nicole Bunyan, founder of Running Mums Australia. Each episode I will be speaking to everyday women who have an inspiring story to tell. We will cover the highs and lows of their own journey, the impact motherhood has had on their life and how running has inspired them to live wilder, dream bigger and change the world around them. Thank you for joining us on this new adventure that will hopefully leave an imprint for you to live out your own life inspired to conquer goals When Geraldine Bilson met her partner, she was very much in love and thought that her relationship would end up being the fairy tale romance she always dreamed of. However, flash forward a couple of years later with a young two-year-old daughter, Katie, Geraldine realised after enduring many experiences and changes in behaviour from her partner that she was in the midst of a family violence relationship. Over a long time deliberating whether to stay or whether to leave, and being fearful of what that actually meant for her and her young daughter, one night her partner became physically violent towards her. This wasn't the first time he had been violent, however this time Geraldine realised she needed to escape this situation, not only for herself but for her young child. In this conversation we talk about the effects of living in a family violence situation. We talk at length about Geraldine's own experiences and the effects that this had on her and her relationships with those around her, including her partner and also her daughter Katie.
We talk about the barriers to women and men seeking assistance that are in family violence situations and where you can get help if this is you or someone that you love. This is a really difficult conversation to have given the nature of what we talk about. So I will just put a warning that we do discuss in detail about Geraldine's experiences and the night that she left her partner. This conversation is really important to have because in Australia, we still deal with so many women and men that are experiencing family violence. And it's only through the collective voices that we can make a difference. We wanted to launch this conversation this week given that the Run Against Violence campaign kicks off um, starting this week and we wanted our voices to be heard alongside that campaign. It's only when we raise our voices that others can hear and see what women and men who are dealing with family violence in their lives are going through and how we can collectively make a difference. I wanted to thank Geraldine for being so brave in sharing her story. And I wanted to thank you, the listener, for coming alongside. And also, please share this conversation with those that you know and love. If you find this conversation difficult, or if there's someone in your family or support network or friends that you think needs some assistance regarding family violence, please contact 1-800-RESPECT or we also have some other services in our show notes. But for now, let me introduce you to Geraldine Bilson. Hi, Geraldine. Welcome to the RMA podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and um, appreciate the opportunity to have a chat. So I wanted to have you on because there's so many facets to your story. Um, One of them being that you're a mom, a little girl, and also you're a runner. And I know you through RMA. So years ago, back in sort of 2014, just basically after we started, you joined the RMA Facebook group and um, our community. And you're quite regular at posting and everything like that. Um, so I thought we'd start there before we get into everything else about your journey, but I thought we'd start there yeah. and just talk about how you found RMA um, yeah. and how you started running. What was the background to that story? Yeah, sure. So um, so I had my daughter in 2012 and um, a little while after that, I guess I entered this losing baby weight journey like everyone does and getting fitter and whatever. And I started running and at first it was like just trying to run 5Ks and then it sort of like just built on that. And at some point I had decided that I wanted to run a half marathon. And so I had registered for Gold Coast Half Marathon and I was travelling up there with a couple of girlfriends and also with Katie. Um, And during that time, I sort of just stumbled across the Running Mums hashtag on um, Running Mums Australia hashtag on Instagram and um, subsequently joined the Facebook group. And yeah, just um, obviously it was a lot smaller back in 2014, but it was just a beautiful community. Um, 
a place where women uplifted each other and encouraged each other and I was um, inspired by other people's running journeys and yeah a place to ask questions and everything like that so um, yeah I remember running my half marathon at the Gold Coast and and I'm not a great runner I'm just a plotter and I just it, it's just something that I did for myself and um, being up there I saw a few running mums people and singlets and things like that and when I came back I thought I might be able to run a full marathon and it just was like a little seed of a dream and I thought I wonder if I could and um and sort of put it out there to the group and next thing you know I was um registered for Melbourne Marathon and um much more committed I guess to my to my training and and the other thing about um running mums was that I guess at the time I um I wasn't sort of seeing a lot of friends or had had a strong community around me and the thing about running mums was and, and also I was doing all of my training solo and it just became like a really nice place to connect with other people and even though that that wasn't in person there was a real humanness about the group and such a supportive vibe and yeah it was just like this really beautiful thing for me and um and I know like I've I've read this quote that says that said um I dare you to train for a marathon and not have it change your life and that's what happened to me like I I was at a place in my life where I didn't really back myself in any real way and I didn't have a strong um, self-esteem or self-worth or anything like that and I and I didn't do things for myself and I just and that's what I started to do so I remember I'd, um, Katie was in childcare one day a week and so I'd get up as early as I could get her, drop her at childcare as early as I could and do my long run and then I'd come home and work and go back and pick her up and um and I just really lived for that for that Wednesday long run and potentially sometimes I got um some other runs in between but that was really my non-negotiable and I just being alone and running and thinking I remember like thinking oh this week I need to run 22 k's and I just think oh, I don't think I can do that and then you know like jumping on the group and everyone's saying you can do it you know like and all that beautiful um you know women supporting women and and then doing it and achieving it and same thing with with running my marathon like and finishing and like I said I'm not a great runner it took me over four and a half hours but um but it definitely changed me and it proved something to me that if I set my mind to something and I put in the work I can I can do it and I can achieve things and I'm strong and I'm resilient and and yeah mm. and who would have thought like back then in 2014 while you were training for that marathon and and running and those solo runs by yourself every Wednesday what lessons you would learn from running and training for a marathon you'd probably use later on in your life throughout your journey you know to be sure. to go from someone who was you know, quite timid and had a 
a bad self-esteem and didn't think much of themselves and wasn't strong to becoming what you are today, which we'll go ahead and talk about <laughs> later, but you know, a really strong, resilient woman who has worked hard to get where she is. So yeah, you know, those things that you probably didn't realize back then you were working on were things that were going to, you know, have you in good stead later on. Yeah, so, for sure. I feel like yeah. that they're, they're the things of my life now. And like I said, it definitely changed me. And it's, they were things that I've held on to throughout, mm. throughout my journey and life since. Mm. So on race day, uh, when you ran that marathon, um, what went through your mind as you ran towards that finish line, given what you had been experiencing in your life in terms of the way you felt about yourself? Um, you know, what went through your finish, the, the finish line experience for you when you yeah. thought, I've done what I set out to achieve? Yeah. Um, I remember someone saying to me, like, when you train for a marathon, marathon day is your victory lap and the training is the hard yards and you're, and you're, yeah, that, that, that is like the, um, it's the good times, I guess it's the training that's hard. And, um, I remember on race day, like getting to like 20 and 30 kilometers in and thinking, oh, I'm still okay. Like, I'm still okay. I've done the training for this. I'm in a good spot. And like I said, I'm not super fast. And, um, I wasn't, I hadn't set out to break records. I just wanted to be able to run a marathon and, yeah, there's just, um, there's something so healing about running long distance for me and being able to prove to yourself that your body can do something and that you, you, you can set your mind to it and overcome those pain barriers and things like that to just keep going. And I guess that's what I'd been doing for many years in my personal and private life was just keep going. And um and there's still, even though you've done the training, even though I'd done the training for the marathon, I guess I still went into it thinking, can I do this? Like, can, there's still that niggle of, am I able to, I think my longest run was 36 kilometers before that. So essentially I should have been able to do it fine, but there is that niggling, like, will I be able to do the whole thing? And, and yeah, I, I did really hurt in the last five kilometers and I was really slow at that point but I remember thinking oh, it's just a park run left and I'm gonna do this and like there was such an emotional joy in that mm. um I remember getting my professional photos back from that race and the last the last few I'm just bawling like I'm just so emotional and it was partly because I was physically hurting but it was also just that joy that emotional joy of I've done it I've conquered it I've set out to do this and I'm going to achieve it and yeah and that was my feeling in crossing the line was um I'd actually done something and felt really proud of myself and mm. um like I said it, it it changed me for sure mm. and the elation that you were feeling like after that marathon like was it short-lived or did it carry on for a while like how were people in your corner in your family were they celebrating with you or was it something that was really just something that you were celebrating yeah I guess um like my family for sure my dad was a runner many years ago so he was really excited for me and and Jen 
generally my um, external family. Um, at the time, I had a partner that wasn't very supportive and it was an uphill battle in the lead up to that marathon to um, just be able to get out for runs and things like that. And I mean, at surface level, he was sort of like, yeah, well done or whatever, but it certainly wasn't something that was really embraced and celebrated in the way that you would hope a partner would like it's a bit it's a huge achievement and we should we should celebrate that um mm. with each other and with our partners and things so um so yeah I guess mm, yeah so we'll get into that now which is you know one of the main reasons we're doing this podcast is to talk about your experience um through working through having family violence um, yep. and as a survivor of family violence yourself. Um, and I thought it was a really important topic to cover um, for the RMA podcast because um, so many women um, in RMA and out of RMA deal with this issue. And it's something yeah. that over the you know span of how many years it's been something that not a lot of people talk about and it's now becoming yeah. something that more people are willing to talk about. And I think that the only way we're going to make any difference with family violence and in Australia is by having this discussion and sharing yeah. the stories of people who have dealt with it and been through it and survived. And your story really impacted me because I didn't have a lot of experience with family violence uh, myself. Um, however, back in you know 2014 2015 when you were in rma and uh, you you did become quite close part of our community um and yeah you did i remember you posting um in rma some things which we'll go into later um yeah and throughout the years you know you've you've advocated and shared about your journey which i'm sure was really difficult throughout many many times but mm now that we've sort of come through the other side i thought you would be a perfect person to interview because there are women that are probably sitting in silence that can listen yeah. to this podcast and gain a lot from you and your journey and your story so let's just talk about when you first met your partner so your ex-partner yeah. who is your perpetrator of family violence mm. let's talk about when you met him and what was that relationship like at the beginning yeah sure so um so we met when we were both working in the mining industry, which, um, yeah, I guess the mining industry in general, I can say, um, is a really male-dominated industry and it's uh, uh, it was in remote WA and um, I guess it was a place where women weren't always treated with the respect that they should be and... Um, and that had really sort of started to seep into who I was and I wasn't, um, I wasn't really strong and I wasn't, we met at a time when I felt really down on myself and he swept in and made me feel great. And in a strange, strange way, he made me feel really safe. And, um, and initially it was amazing and it was, a really intense love and yeah but that sort of set the tone for the rest of the relationship in that I was always trying to get back to that 
to those feelings and that place of feeling safe and adored and loved and respected and all those things um yeah but and and also looking back I guess um it didn't take very long for there to be some red flags and and for me that was um that I saw flashes of anger and um him not being able to control his emotions and the way that he spoke to other people it wasn't great but I guess for me I kind of put that as something really separate to our relationship and I sort of saw that as that's how he treats other people or that's just an issue where he can't control his anger but it's not it's nothing to do with us um and as as the years went on I guess I started to see that that was part of our relationship and it was it did slowly start to get um directed at me um and so after a few years we moved back to Victoria where I'm from and um and then I fell pregnant with our daughter and it was really at that time that um that things kind of really started to go um sour and I he started picking on my physical appearance and being quite controlling and um I was working for him in his business but not being paid and yeah it just sort of started to track to a quite a negative um place and then and then I had our daughter and after that um after that it really took another whole notch down and it was after I had her that I started to become quite physically scared of him and so um we would like argue about something and i would feel physically intimidated so i guess sometimes it would be he would stand over me and um things like that and then as time went on there were times when he had pushed or shoved me and then there was another time where he pushed me and i'd fallen down the stairs and and so i guess i've i've heard people talk about all the different forms of family violence and people talk about being financially abused or emotionally abused or physically abused or sexually abused and um and it's really important that we recognize all of those things because some people will experience one or two or many of those things um but for me i really experienced all of those things and it was just one big ex negative experience but when i was living in it i just I didn't really I never thought of myself as a family violence victim or didn't I just never I guess let myself go to a place where I really thought of it specifically as that I knew that there were things that were seriously wrong and I guess deep in the pit of who I was I really understood that I was going to be in trouble if I ever wanted to get out of this relationship but I just um I think that I just put all my energy into surviving the day-to-day -day and trying to minimize um, things that were going on and trying to appease him and everything like that. So um, I guess that's sort of like the picture of, of how it went and how it escalated and um, gives you, I guess, an idea of what was going on in my life during that time. Had you ever, during, I mean, I guess during that time, 
was it the fact that also you loved this person that made it hard for you to see that you were actually a victim of family violence because your mind was saying well what he's doing is wrong however I love him and yeah is that kind of making it hard for you to actually see clearly yeah definitely and I think it's also really important to recognize that it wasn't all bad if it was Mm. bad 24 7 then maybe it would have been easier to get out but um but it wasn't all bad and so um if he came home happy and we had a great night then the next day I'd be I'd feel relieved and like okay maybe we've turned a corner here or you know like maybe he is going to get a lot more relaxed or because he doesn't have this stress going on with the business right now then now we're going to be in a good place and it's like you said you I loved him and it wasn't it wasn't my ideal during that time to leave. It was my ideal that he would get better and that he would, we would get back to that place where he loved and respected me and made me feel safe. Um, so yeah, I think it's like definitely really important that we recognize that and don't sort of look at it one dimensionally, like it's this terrible negative 24 seven thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when you did um, fall pregnant with your daughter and you had the baby, um, Hmm. how did that affect your relationship? Did he change? Like you said, he changed after, you know, you had fallen pregnant and and had the baby. How how did that change? Did it get better for a little bit when Katie came along or, you know? Yeah. um, So when I had, when I had Katie, I, um, like literally when I gave birth to Katie, I had some complications and um, that meant that I ended up back in hospital, I think it was for about nine days. Um, Yeah, and as I got better, the the hospital was wanting to um, set up some things for when I was coming home, so some help at home. And... um, and I remember, and so he really struggled with the birth thing. He was not very supportive of me. And at a time when I really needed him to be good, he really wasn't. And it was really my mum that helped me through that time of being physically ill. And mm. she was at the hospital a lot looking after Katie as a brand new born while I was trying to um, get better. And yeah, so um, so a social worker at the hospital came to see me and my perpetrator um, to see to set up some things at home, so some help around the house and stuff. And um, and he had a really really strong reaction to that, and said, "No, no, we don't have people in our house. We're not interested. Whatever." And um, so she was really good and just said, "Okay, that's fine," and left. And she came back later when he wasn't around and and she was the first person in my life to ask to directly ask me are you safe at home and um and that that moment has always really stuck with me Mm. and although at the time I I told her no like I'm fine everything's fine he's just got a temper you don't need to worry about us um yeah so although I didn't take her up on that offer it really planted a seed in my life and um it just made me feel seen and heard 
and yeah it just it planted a seed for, for knowing that okay other people are seeing what's going on and they know that it's not okay had other people in your family or your friends notice stuff and i guess i guess if she was the first one to say anything yeah in hindsight have those people now said to you we wish that we had said something to you what was stopping them yeah. and, and that's also yeah. something that's important for other people to hear because if they are yeah. in a friendship with someone or in a family with someone that's dealing with this what what was mm. your experience and what would you tell those people now to yeah do? yeah i guess um my family especially um uh, I'm, I'm one of five children and my parents uh, uh, like we're all really really close and they had noticed things going on and the way that he treated me and stuff like that and they were not happy about that um, but they themselves had no idea about family violence or how to speak to somebody or anything like that um, and my mum especially often still to this day says oh, I wish I'd done this or I wish I'd done that um, and I don't I don't like hold anything against her because she did what she knew to do and that was to love and support me through that relationship and that is what something that we can do is when we see somebody that we love in a relationship that maybe we don't approve of and we can see that they're not being treated in a way that we would find acceptable it's really important that we don't write them off and mm. feel a frustration with them and think that okay that's it I don't want anything to do with that um mm. so yeah like I said she really loved me through that and there were times when I had tried to leave and in fact once I had really made a definite decision to leave and and my mum was part of that and um I'd taken some some steps towards that and he had said that he was going to publish um intimate photos of me on the internet and my mother took me um to the police and and so she was really part of that and and later i i chose to go back to him and i guess now looking at it being a mother myself i just think gosh how did she how did she love and support me through that but she did mm -hmm. and and the other really important thing that she did was she didn't um she didn't isolate me or him like it wasn't like she was like i'm not going to have anything to do with him she just yeah like i said she just loved us through through that um there were a couple of times where people saw him um be verbally abusive towards me and they in a way tried to call him out on that um which is important but it but it did actually make things essentially worse for me because he was worse when we got home and it isolated me from them mm. um it made me feel more shame and more embarrassment and, and it um pushed me closer to to him and so i think that while it's really important that we recognize behavior and call it out we need to do it like in a way that we keep um the people that we love and care about or the victim at the forefront of everything that we do and you know um maybe it's a case of you wait till you till you've got one-on-one -on -one time with the person that you care about and you say i noticed that this happened and i really don't like the way he talks to you i'm just letting you know that if you want to talk to me you can um mm. or push them towards a professional service that deals with family violence that's that's another option um yeah so 
yes, there were times that people had tried to help, um, but like me, most of the people around me, they didn't know much about family violence. And like you said at the start of this chat, it's something that we still historically and now see as a private matter and we don't talk about it and we're embarrassed about it. We feel uncomfortable talking about it. Like it's uncomfortable for us to sit here talking about it. It doesn't mm. feel great to talk about it. Mm. Um, so yeah, so all of those things, I think, um, yeah, we've got, to, we've got to work on. To try and mitigate the risks of him being abusive or violent, um, you, your behaviour, you know, was a little bit different. What kind of things did you do to try and stop him from, or to try and, I guess, mitigate that risk from when he came home? Was there things that you yeah. look back now and were routines that you did to make? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What kind of things? Yeah, for sure. Like um, when when I did finally leave, I remember one of my friends saying to me, do you know your house is so was so clean, it smelled like a hospital. Like <laughs> it was that that clean and I was so pedantic about um cleaning up before he got home and yeah like he would go off to work for the day and it would just be Katie and I and I'd feel that real sort of like um sense of relief and a few hours of just her and I to do whatever we wanted but by the time um lunchtime came around I'd be really agitated about getting home so I remember like being at mother's groups and things like that and like watching the clock like okay I want to get home with enough time to be able to clean the house and have it smelling clean and the dinner all set ready to go just to mitigate that agitation or having something that could be um a trigger for his for his disapproval or anger or anything like that um and beyond that there was also things that I did that I didn't even realize that I was doing so I would like do the groceries and not take the receipt because I wouldn't want to be like for him to go through it and be like why did you get this why did you get that mm. um so I'd go and do the groceries come home put it all away so that we didn't even have to have that discussion um and as well as well in hindsight I realize now that I was like constantly running risk assessments in my head. So if he came home angry, I would think, shall I go, shall I go out with Katie to the park? And I'd think, will that make him angrier today that I want to go out than it would if I stay home and we're too loud or making a mess or whatever. And so it would be that constant, um, yeah, constant running risk assessments in my head to come up with the best thing to do to work around his behavior and and you know like um I think it's really important to recognize that a lot of or all family violence victims they're so smart and resilient because they're constantly doing this stuff and mm -hmm. you know like people want to ask them why don't they why don't you just leave or you know like why would you put up with that or whatever and people don't give them credit for the way their intelligence and their resilience and their bravery and living with this stuff day in and day out. Mm, um, right. Yeah. So when was the first time that he was physically violent towards you? And what happened there? Yeah. Um, I guess like I was talking about earlier, it was sort of progressive for me in that 
after I'd had Katie, it, yeah, it just kind of tracked to a new low, I guess. And, yeah, like I said, I feel like we would start to argue then and he would be physically intimidating. Um, and so, yeah, like stand over me. I mean, he was bigger than me. Like it's mm. it's really scary to live with somebody that you love that you're literally afraid of. Like mm. this is a person that can do serious harm to me if they want to. And to try to explain that to people is really, really hard. Like I don't really know how to explain that mm. to you guys. Um, yeah, and so I, there's a lot of times that we would have argued that I felt that and and then there was a number of times during that time that he physically hurt me where he it was a push or a shove or like I said earlier there was a time where he pushed me and I'd fallen down the stairs um did he ever apologize when he'd done that afterwards like um sort of yes he would have but then and then we would get back on track and then he would start saying things that insinuated like it was my fault and it was like and yet I knew that I knew it wasn't but I also knew that if I protested and insisted that we talk about it and he he accept that it was his fault would have just created another mm. argument and created another whole scene and he would have said I was psycho and that I was bringing up things from the past and you know, so again, just to mitigate that, let's not have an argument, let's just be happy, I'd be, just accept that. And mm. I guess it's another way of emotionally abusing somebody because they, you get so caught up in this mess that you just feel like everything's your fault and you feel like it's just all really foggy because you can't see start to believe things like you're a psycho or you start mm. to believe things like you're going crazy or is it my fault or things mm. like that um yeah that so, manipulation yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so when his behavior escalated where's was there like a pattern of that behavior or was it more reactive to when certain things happened like yeah, um, I guess people talk about like the cycle of abuse and in a way that would happen for me. I remember after I left, somebody showed me this, that actual cycle of abuse and it made, makes sense to me. Um, but it's also different for everyone and it was a little bit different for me. It definitely, his behaviour definitely was triggered by things like something going wrong at work or... Um, you know, if he'd argued with somebody else or something like that, then it definitely would get worse for me. Um, so, yeah, I guess it was, in a way, a cycle. But, yeah, it was hard to predict as well. Like, we could yeah. be tracking really well. And then out of the blue, it would be like he'd start picking on me and it would get worse. And I guess uh, the other the other important aspect for me was that, as I started to realise this isn't okay and I don't accept this and I did start to internally have little thoughts about what would it look like if I wasn't with this person anymore, that it was during that time that it actually got worse. Mm. And so I think that 
he probably felt that shift of me trying a little bit less to um, mitigate him and pushing mm. a little bit more for this I don't accept this and that's when mm. um, particularly physically things got worse for me. Mm. So during that time when things got worse and you were starting to think about leaving him or potentially mm. what that would look like, what things were you scared about? Um, what comes to my mind is yeah. to leave having no financial support. Yeah. You know, like what sort of things were you scared of for yourself yeah. and Katie's future to walk out that door? Like, Surely that's yeah. what kept you staying a lot of the time is those fears of what would it actually look like if I did leave? Yeah, I, I had no confidence in myself, like like zero. And so I really, I honestly didn't believe that I was capable of running a household by myself, of being a single mum, of providing for her. I had no idea how I w would or could provide for for her and um that's really scary it's really scary as an adult woman and a mother to not know how you can even I didn't know if I would have a car I wouldn't have a roof mm. over my head like all of those I would have no income like that mm. stuff if we don't like if victims can't meet those basic needs like then what confidence do you have in walking away from this person like mm. especially given everything that's happened up to that point where emotionally you don't you don't have any confidence in yourself and you don't you can't think straight so I didn't think I didn't think to reach out to a service or anything like that I did um before I left in the months before I left I did I had started to try to google things like um Centrelink calculators to try to work out okay what would what would it look like if I left but it was hard it's really hard to navigate all of that stuff and I still was fuzzy about not really understanding you know what what that would look like in a practical sense um so yeah and and then beyond that I also, like I touched on earlier, I didn't necessarily, like, I think as a society now, we really understand that um, the most dangerous time for a victim is when she leaves. And like I said, I didn't really think of myself as a family violence victim. And in that way, I didn't think, oh, I might get murdered when I leave. Mm. But I for sure knew that it was going to be really hard for me to leave. And I mm. for sure was scared of doing so because I wasn't sure what in what way he would react or how I could keep Katie and I safe if I was to do that. Mm. So let's talk about that now. So um, we've, you know, we've talked about the night um, that he got really, really physically violent with you. And I remember yeah. Um, after that time, share, you sharing some photos with other women to help them um, understand yeah. what you'd experienced. Um, so let's talk about that night. So could you, yeah, sure. if you're comfortable, explaining the events that led up to that night? Yeah. Um, and what happened? Yeah. So, um, so he had come home from work. And we had had an argument about the cleanliness of the house, which 
you know, like I said earlier, the house was very clean mm -hmm. and it was a regular, it was something that we regularly argued about. And um, like I also said, I had gotten to the point where things weren't really acceptable for me anymore. And so when he argued with me about it, I did argue back and I did stand up for myself and I did sort of say, you know, like, no, the house is fine and whatever. And, and the result of that was that he did um, physically assault me. And so he um, picked me up and threw me through a doorway. And um, Katie was there and watching on and I had um, hit the floor and got up to see her um, racing into the bathroom. And so I um, chased after her and when I got into the bathroom, I saw her in the bathtub. She crawled into the bathtub and she was crouched up hiding in the corner of the bath. And, um, and I just looked at her and I just sort of thought to myself, like, this might be okay for you but it's not okay for her anymore. And, um, you know, lots of people talk about family violence victims choosing to stay because they're a mother, but also choosing to leave because they're a mother. And that's really true for me. I, I decided in that moment that we were gonna get out. Um, and so over the course, that was in the evening, in the early evening, and over the course of that night, I um, tried to leave and I was, assaulted once more again in front of her which had resulted in some um in like a black eye which is the photo that many running mums saw a few days later um and and yeah lots of things happened during that night like um but yeah eventually I had talked him into taking me to a 24-hour medical clinic and I got out with him and with Katie and walked in and there was, it was late at night and there was a security guard on. And as, as I walked through the door, I screamed and said, he, he has done this to me. And he just took off. And, um, and the rest of that night was um, hospital and police. And so all of a sudden there was like another, uh, uh, a number of, interventions sort of happened and people got involved in the situation and mm. and we were out mm. very intense yeah hmm. I need to just take a minute <laughs> mm. so how old was katie when you left yeah katie was two and a half at that time yeah mm. um clearly she was you know she was scared <laughs> Yeah, when we when we left, Katie had a really, really deep-seated fear of all males. So even um, males in my family, she found it hard to be around. And she also was pretty much completely non-verbal. So she just didn't speak. And um, after that time, she had we had a number of people come and help her so she had a speechy and an OT and a child psychologist and a lot of them were sort of saying oh there's this wrong with her there's that wrong with her and 
I kept saying, like, I actually don't think there is. I think she's just scared to speak. Mm. And um, and I and I was right. Like she, mm. so it sort of took her a year to come out of that. And you know, one of the things that I often tell people is, um, she found her voice when I found mine. And mm. um, and now she is seven and a half and you would not find a happier little girl and um and so I still feel um like really sad and like in my in my heart I still feel guilty about like what um she had to live through during that time even though I know it wasn't my fault yeah. Um. But yeah, but she's so happy now, and and I'm really proud of her. <laughs> mm. Come a long way, both of you, mm. and a much happier future. Yeah. 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 And that's testament to your bravery and your courage to leave. And mm. I'm sure that was really hard for you, um, at the time, you know, even to have the courage to call out to that security guard and say that he did that to you, not knowing mm. what his reaction could be, because there's been, you know, circumstances just like that when someone would say that and that person got killed right then. You yeah. know, and you know, that that took a lot of courage and bravery on your behalf to do that. And that was that was your moment to get out of that situation for you and your daughter. You should be really it really, proud. it really it really felt like that. Um and I know like in the lead up to that time, I I remember like standing in the bathroom and like looking at myself and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I just don't want to be in this anymore. But I just didn't know like how or what could happen where I would be able to leave. And then it just kind of happened and that's what it felt like. It felt like the moment that I just had to grab hold of and dig deep and 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 go for it yeah so the next day um you when you after you had escaped him um and you'd been in hospital and then you went to the police and you got out um an intervention order um on him yeah um he you would then i think you went back to the house i guess to get some things or yeah what, what, so yeah and then he tried to run you off the road in your car yeah you with your dad at the time yeah so um so the next day at nine o'clock i had to be at court the next day and i think i think we were i was discharged from hospital like two or three o'clock in the morning and the next day at 9am i had to be at court and um and at that time, the police had applied for an intervention order. And um, during the course of that day, it was granted. And then late in the afternoon, um, the police removed him from our home. And he, I guess, wasn't expecting that. And this is a person who has had so much power and control over us and our life and all aspects of it and all of a sudden we've left um there's so much uncertainty for his future and he's now 
um, removed from the home with nowhere to go. And it really was, um, like we spoke about earlier, that this can be the most dangerous time for a victim. And, and that's exactly what happened with me. It was a really dangerous time in my life. And he had a really, really strong reaction to being um, removed from the home. And in fact, he actually went back to the courthouse and then back to our local police station. And I had the police prosecutor at the courthouse as well as the local police both phone me to say, please don't be alone tonight because we don't know what he's capable of or what's going to happen. And essentially they said, keep your phone charged and close to you and call triple O um, if he turns up. And so um, we sort of made the decision, I sort of made the decision with my parents that I would stay at their house with some of my brothers there as well. And we had gone in the car to get some belongings from the house, from my home, before returning to their house. And um, while I was in the car with them is when I saw him in his car and, yeah, and then he um, tried to run us off the road, which, um, yeah, I was on the phone to Triple O as that happened. So... We're going to play a little bit of that now. Um, and I just wanted to put a warning for people that might listen to this, including myself, who's starting to get emotional before I even press start, um, that it is quite distressing. But this is this is how you felt, I guess, and how afraid you were mm. of your perpetrator at the time. Um, and the level of, you know, I guess, uh, fear also, you know, talks about how dangerous the situation is for people who are leaving um, yeah. perpetrators. So we will play a little bit of this um, and we'll talk about um, what happened after that. okay yeah every yeah. time I listen to that I just think oh my god <laughs> yeah I think that like it's one thing for us to talk about it being the scariest time but like 
I just, I, I remember I said, saying to my family, like, he's not going to give up until he kills me. Like, and that's, that's like literally how I felt and how it was unfolding for me. And, you know, for people to say, why doesn't, why don't people leave? Like, they just don't understand the complexities around trying to exit a relationship like that. And I guess um, it's really hard to share that with, that recording with people, but um, I feel like it exists, it exists and it's important because it's just like a very real way for people to um, try to understand that. Yeah. I think unless you're living that experience, we just we just don't understand. We yeah. don't understand what that's like, and that's why it's so important for people to be having these conversations in the community so that yeah. we can raise awareness of what to look for um, yeah. in our friends and our family. And also, I guess, in some way, if there's more conversations being had, then there's probably more opportunity for other victims to speak out and to be able to leave, you know, to be able to feel yes. safe that there's somebody that's going to listen to them. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Yeah, that it's by shining the light on these dark places that that does that, it puts light on it and it, it helps the people that are sitting in those dark places to not feel alone and um, that we can be better equipped to support them in those moments and, um, and in that way, like, empower them to be able to make the choice to leave. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So what actually happened after that? Um, was he arrested or was he charged? Like, what happened yeah. when, when that horrifying experience was over? Like, yeah. obviously you got, you got away from him um, yeah. later in the recording. You know, you got away from him and went to be with your parents, mm. but... What happened after that? Um, yeah, I guess I wish I could tell you that he was arrested and put in jail and that was the happy ending, but it wasn't. Um, and that sort of thing played out for a few more days. And um, although I had done all the right things in having police support, having an IVO in place, all those things, I still um, essentially was not safe. And um, the police didn't immediately charge him. We gave statements. Um, he made some partial admissions to the assault in the night before. Um, I got granted the IVO, obviously, but um, criminal charges weren't laid for, I think it was like about six months later. Um, and in the time that followed that, I was really lucky in that he jumped on a plane and went interstate um, before they charged him. So, I mean, lucky and unlucky in that he wasn't held to account, but I was, uh, Katie and I were safe because he wasn't around. Um, mm. And like I said, it took some time for the law to sort of catch up. And, and then beyond that, I spent nearly two years in and out of court. So um, between IVO hearings, criminal charges and family law proceedings, it was nearly two years. And um, again, I felt 
a little bit let down by police and legal response and I found that the court um, the whole court experience for me was very re-traumatizing and mm. and it was really difficult to get through and you know we have this idea of um, family violence victims getting out and that's their you know and they're free and they're happy and that's their happy ending and it's it's a nice idea but it just does not happen like that um I had no money I had no car um lots of things that practically I had to put my life back together and then beyond that emotionally putting myself back together after this took such a long time and I really was just you know obviously I've spoken about the effect that I had on Katie but for me myself I really was just like a shell of a person and I think that um living through that relationship I felt in some ways I felt quite strong living in it because I just poured all my energy into surviving day-to-day -day and mitigating all those things on a day-to-day -day basis but then once you leave you're left sitting in the in absolute mess of that whole like that the, the, all those years of, of living through that and facing all that all of that and trying to put yourself back together is really hard mm. um so, so yeah. what sort of support did you have mm. after that and did you access any support services um and you know was you know obviously you have a very supportive family yeah um, what support did you access after you left? yeah like on a personal level i was really lucky with the people around me um and then on a on a more specific level it was after that um incident that we just listened to that phone call that some actual um specific family violence specialist services got involved and i started to recognize the fact that i was a family violence victim and um we did risk assessments and some case management and all of that sort of thing and um I'm really grateful for all of that because the support was amazing um, and people just they really wanted to help me and I feel so lucky and grateful for all of that help um, you know I often talk about the fact that I was walking into these places and I was I looked how I felt I had a bruised up face I could not speak without crying I just looked like a mess and so I think that for um, other people looking at me, it was so hard for them not to feel sympathetic. Like you've got this this woman in front of you that's clearly a mess. She's got a black eye. Like people just genuinely wanted to help me. But it's really, really important that we recognise that that's not the case for a lot of family violence victims, that you can't see the hurt that they're carrying. You can't see the abuse that they've lived with for many years. and for some people, their fear and their hurt does not um, look like the way we almost want it to, that they may be aggressive, like fear can look like aggression, and that is more challenging to deal with. And yeah. so I think that it's really important that we know that and that we um, are ready still to provide the same level of support that we would for someone like me versus somebody who doesn't look like that. Mm. Um, 
Absolutely. Yeah. I guess the other thing that I would really like to talk about is the way that um, Running Mum supported me. So, um, so it was like a, a few days after all of this went down. I, or actually, it was the morning that I had left, the morning after I'd left, just before I went to court, I um, sent you a message with a photo of my face and said, this has happened, I've just ordered a singlet, please don't send it to my house because I'm not going to be there. And, um, and, and you wrote me back and like, we didn't hardly even know each other then. And I just, I don't even know why I did that. Like, you know, like who cares about a singlet at a time like that? But for whatever reason, that's what I did. And, um, and you were beautiful to me and very supportive and, and lovely to me. And you also like, I think let the group know without, without naming me or anything. And it was a few days later and I was sort of from here and there checking in to look at this post that was that you'd written that was getting all this traction. And it was a few days after that, that I um, posted a photo of myself, of my face. And I said, I am going to try and go out for a run today. And I don't think I can. And please, would you like support me in trying to do so? And, um, and the group blew up my phone. <laughs> they just, <laughs> I've never had anything like it. Just like people, there were a lot of people in Running Mums that I knew back then that were really close friends. But there was a lot of people in that group that I had never met before ever. And all of a sudden, I just got flooded with messages of support. Um, there were people interstate doing runs for me. And mm -hmm. like... I know that we can't, I know that even as a group, we can't do that for every family violence victim, but um, the way that that encouraged me and supported me at a time when I just felt so alone, that is what I wish for family mm -hmm. violence victims, that they would not feel alone, that they would feel like there was an army of women that they knew and didn't know behind them cheering them on. And, mm -hmm. and I think that that does exist you know, certainly from a stranger's perspective, that's how I feel. I feel like a champion for people that are going through it. That that's mm -hmm. all I wish for them is that they would feel my love and support. Um, but yeah, in a very, very real way, Running Mums was like my little army of support. Mm -hmm. um, it was like, I think it was about 10 days later that um, a few of us from Victoria met up at the Albert Park um park run and and again like there was people that came to run with me that I didn't even know um and then there was other friends there's people that I could name but I don't want to start naming people because I'll miss people yeah. off but um mm -hmm. yeah it just um it was a really beautiful thing and it was a testament to the fact that running mums is a running group but it's a community and it's it exists for running for sure, but it's so much more for a lot of people, including me. And, um, and as well, the other thing, the other really beautiful thing was that it was that moment that I realized that if I, if I speak about, if I speak my truth and I tell people my story, it might actually help people. And, um, I started getting a lot of DMs from people that in the group that were suffering too and 
um, as my life has kept going and I've done advocacy work and told my story, that's been like, that's what's happened. I, I have a lot of people reach out and I know like the group now is nearly 40,000 members and we know one in four women are going to have experienced family violence in their intimate partner relationships. I mean, that's nearly statistically, we're talking about potentially 10,000 people in our group that are experiencing this. And um, and so I know, like I said, we, we exist for running, but we are also women and mothers that support each other and um, encourage each other and uplift each other and and like I said it's been it's been an absolute gift in my life so I thank you for creating it and I thank the members for being such a special part of my life. Oh that's so beautiful and I do remember those moments and I remember the post I remember getting that message from you and as someone to receive that message um I'll be honest, I didn't even know what to do. Like, yeah. I just felt like I wanted to jump through that phone and protect you. Um, yeah. And, you know, I absolutely 100% agree with you. RMA is a running network, which is about running, but it is so much more than that. And that's the mm. reason why we're doing this podcast, because mm. this is an issue that affects everybody. And mm. probably everybody knows someone or of someone yeah that has been through family violence and it's got to stop. So this yeah. is the reason we're doing it because, you know, as you said, you found your voice mm. and your voice is making a huge impact. And one voice makes a massive impact, but imagine what a whole army of voices can do. Yeah. So that's the reason why I wanted to get you on the podcast to share your story. And I'm so thankful that you're willing to share your story because there's lots of women that probably don't share their story out of shame or guilt. Yeah, um, but you're making a massive difference by doing so. And yeah. I mean, I think those people who hear this, who were back, you know, in RMA back then when they listened to this podcast, they're going to feel, you know, that those feelings are going to come back up again for them. They remember mm. you. I was just telling somebody today how I was going to be recording with you and they yeah. all remember your story. Aww. Your story was so impactful, you know, mm. and it still is. It still is making a difference. So we'll touch on now um, how your journey has, you know, come to the new life that you're experiencing. Um, yeah. 87. Um, yeah. So you've been free for how many years now? Yeah. So this is my fifth year of being free. And, you know, like I said earlier, it's not a case of you leave the relationship and it's this happy ending and whatever, mm. but, I feel like I'm like, I feel like I'm getting there now and like, yeah, it feels like, it feels like I've been given this second life, like this second chance at life and it's totally not wasted on me. I, um, I'm so happy and, you know, like there's still for sure times where I don't feel great or, you know, um, the emotions of it all catch up with me and stuff like that or, I feel traumatized or something like that for sure and I'm not um I'm certainly not minimizing the fact that um victim survivors live with long-term scars it's really important that we acknowledge that but I also really want to tell people I'm really happy and 
um, yeah, this is my fifth year free and I am now doing some work in the sector. Um, so I've shared my story quite a few times now in workplaces and fundraising and stuff like that. And also a few times in, within the media now. Mm. And, um, and that's been really rewarding. I feel really heard and validated in my experience. And I also just feel a little bit like I'm making a little bit of a difference. And that's really special for me. Um, yeah, Katie and I just are just really genuinely peaceful and happy and yeah. And you've got a new loving partner. Yes, I am. You like also, to run too, you tell me. Yes, I'm also repartnered and he's beautiful and so kind and gorgeous to Katie and I. And funnily enough, in the last about 12 or so months, he's taken up running. And he'd probably, um, we sometimes race and and I win, but I haven't raced him for about six months because I think he'd beat me. The <laughs> so, um, time's so, coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, we had planned to come to the Gold Coast to um, run Gold Coast Marathon together in 2020, but unfortunately COVID put a stop to that. So, I mean, he's hoping for maybe 2021 and I can... I can introduce you to him. Great. <laughs> um, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. <laughs> yeah. So in your work now um, as an advocate, so what's your title again? I want people to know how amazing you are and how, you know, <laughs> you by opening your voice up to share your story has brought you opportunities yeah. in your world that you probably thought would never happen in a career. Um, yeah. So tell everybody what that is and also what does you know, having that courage to speak out about your live experience, how does that help others by using your voice? And what does using your voice actually do to help them? Like, and yeah. what can our voice do to help them? Yeah, sure. Um, so I started volunteering with um, Safe Steps through Safe Steps Advocacy Program. And so I received some training in public speaking and speaking to the media and stuff like that. And so, yeah, on a volunteer basis, I started telling my story and a few um, things came up, including one bigger sort of media situation. And then, and that was over a few years. And then at the beginning of 2020, I started in a role with um, the Victorian Victim Survivor Advisory Council or VSAC as it's known. Um, and VSAC came out of the Royal Commission into Family Violence and one of the recommendations in that was that family violence victim survivors stay at the heart of all reform. And so that's why the council exists is so that government and other people can come and say, this is what we're thinking of doing. How would that impact victims? Or um, what's your thoughts on that? And for me, like that is, that is like the most rewarding job I've ever had in my life. Um, I absolutely love it. I love it so much that I've gone back to study. So I'm studying for my graduate certificate in family violence. And I really, I guess I really hope that even at the end of my term on VSAC that there'll be a space for me in the sector doing some sort of work. And yeah, and I guess, um, what does sharing my voice, sharing my voice and my story 
um, means for me that, like I said earlier, I feel it's a chance for me to speak, but it's a chance for me to really be heard. And that's important because it's a, an acknowledgement of what I went through, but it's also an acknowledgement for all victim survivors of what family violence can look like and the barriers that there are to leave, to seeking support, to uh, navigating the justice system, all of those type of things. And that, like I said earlier, those all of those things have been very private matters historically, but it's it's time that we tackle family violence as a health issue for our whole society, for men and women, and that we do face it so that we can create better outcomes and more positive outcomes for people. Um, and, and also the end goal is to prevent it altogether and that we do live a life where people are free and respected and loved in their own homes and that people don't have these types of experiences. Um, so, yeah. So exciting. Yeah. So where might people who are listening, um, who are living an experience of a domestic violence or family violence victim, where would those people be able to seek out some help and support? Yeah. So I guess like, because we're talking about all over the country, it's, you know, um, it's important that people reach out to specialist services within their own state, but also that they can call 1-800-RESPECT and that's 24-7. Um, and yeah, I would really encourage anyone that is experiencing family violence or thinks that they may be experiencing family violence to do that. Um, and also if you, um, if somebody close to you, like somebody that you love or care about is experiencing family violence, that you, you can reach out to and you can explain the situation and that they can professionally guide you with how to support that person. Good. Well, I'll put some of those um, support services in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. So that people are able to access those services if they need to. Yeah. So I was going to ask you the five quick questions for the RMA Hot Lap, but I actually feel like it's it just doesn't go with what we've discussed. But there is one sure. question mm. that I think I would like to ask you, and is and that is if Katie was to say one thing about you and how you've been through this experience and come out the other side as a woman and a strong woman, what is it that you would love her to see and say about you now, where you are in your life? Oh gosh, so hard. Um, oh, you make me cry before I've even answered it. Um, I think that I would just want her to say like, thank you. and like but that's what I would say to her as well because I feel like she said to me you know that it was her that made me get up and get out of that situation so in a way I would hope that she would say like thank you for giving us this new life and I would just say it right back to her that um she's my little shining light and my little hero and I want to be her hero but she for sure is mine mm. That's beautiful. Well, thanks so much for sharing with us today, Geraldine. I know it's a really difficult conversation to have and and something that you're dealing and rehashing every single day. Um, and 
thanks for your bravery and your courage in sharing with us. And I'm sure that the conversation we've had today is going to help so many people out there, not just women, mm. men as well. So mm. many people out there that are dealing with family violence and hopefully our collective voices can make a difference. Yeah, I and I agree. And I thank you for the opportunity for exactly those reasons that we are wearing this together and that as a community, we are, we are tackling this issue and, and I do, I thank you for elevating the, my voice and my experience in order to help other people. So thank you. Wow. Thank you for joining in and listening to this really powerful episode of the RMA podcast. I really want to thank Geraldine for being so courageous to share her story. If you or someone that you love are dealing with family violence and need support, please contact 1-800-RESPECT and we'll also have some services available for you in the show notes. I would love you to share this episode with those that you know that may love to hear it. I'd also love you to collectively raise your voice against family violence in your own communities. It's when we raise our voices together that we make the most powerful statements. Next week on the RMA podcast, I interview Kiralee Deer, who is the co-founder of Run Against Violence, a campaign that aims to raise awareness around family violence. I hope you join in that powerful conversation where I discuss the beginnings of running against violence with Kiralee and where it has evolved to today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the RMA podcast and I look forward to speaking with you soon.